Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Anthony Cao. My guest today is Ying Zhu. Ying is a leading expert on Chinese film and media. She's a professor at the Academy of Film at Hong Kong Baptist University, with other appointments at Columbia and the City University of New York. She's the founder and chief editor of Global Storytelling, Journal of Digital and Moving Images, and the author of four books. Her latest book is Hollywood in China, published July 2022 by The New Press. Hollywood in China chronicles the relationship between China's cinematic industry and Hollywood from the early 1900s until the present day. As someone who personally reviews a lot of Asian cinema, I appreciated how comprehensive the book was. It has an easy-to-follow chronology with case studies of numerous specific films that people who follow Chinese cinema will probably be familiar with. For those with a more general interest in China, I think this book will be a great intro to what became the world's largest movie market during COVID uh, and is still the second largest to this day. Thank you very much, Ying Zhu, for coming on our show. Thank you for having me. Well, to begin, can you tell us a little bit about your personal background and your journey to becoming a leading expert on Chinese media? Well, I'm not sure leading, uh, but I'm trying. <laughs> uh, and uh, well, I, I studied film. I, I have a, a film degree from a, a U.S. institution, and I, I, I taught actually prior to moving in, uh, moving to uh, East Asia in Hong Kong. I, I, I was also faculty with the City University of New York uh, for almost two decades. So I've been honing this for a long time, and I published my first book on Chinese film industry that chronicles uh, the process of a reform and opening up the commercialization and uh, marketization of Chinese cinema. Um, you know, I did that book uh, um, 20 years ago, actually. And so this new book is essentially a updated version of what had transpired. And also it goes back to further to, to the historical moment, uh, the encounters between Hollywood and, and Chinese film industry. So, so that's kind of the journey that I have, um, you know, undergo for the past two decades. Uh, so what inspired you to do this update at this point uh, in the long history of Chinese cinema and your personal career? Yeah, well, this, this book is actually, you know, essentially 10 years in the making. You know, it's always, uh, it's, for me, it's always a meticulous process doing archival research, doing interview and, and watching films. And, and, and I think that what puzzles me, what interests me is, you know, is this kind of uh, uh, whipsaw of, of this ups and downs of the relationship between these two now, you know, the major film industries. Uh, and what uh, kind of intrigues me is also this larger kind of political backdrop, the Sino-U.S. relationship. But uh, so I thought that um, by you know, using uh, Sino-Hollywood relationship, um, you know, looking at the Sino-U.S. relationship through the prism of Sino 
poly relationship could be a, a kind of interesting angle to to understand you know what what happened how come you know we, we get to where we are and where this is going right so where this is going is this consequential not only to the film industry uh, and also to the political uh, larger global uh, you know political and geo uh, um, geoculture um, and power dynamic let's get into the actual content of the book, uh, given you've given us this very enticing preview. Uh, your book starts in the last days of the Qing dynasty in the early 1900s, and it reveals how Hollywood and Chinese cinema were quite intertwined from the beginning. Uh, describe to us how movies first took root in China and Hollywood's influences inside of that process. Yeah, so so the the, the book, uh, as you mentioned, really essentially parallels uh, in, in a somewhat broad stroke, and the origins and also evolutions and decades by decade. You know, if you go down the uh, table of content of the American and Chinese film industries from uh, the inception all the way uh, to the era of COVID, right? and and all the while concentrating or centering on the kind of entangled sign of Hollywood relation, and which is of course the focus of the book, and essentially kind of kind of breaks down the kind of historical trajectory into four phases, uh, dating back all the way to 1897, as you alluded, it's you know in the late the Qing Dynasty, and which was the year when the first batch of U.S. motion pictures appeared in China, right. And the first phase saw the kind of overwhelming presence of Hollywood during China's Republic era from 1912 to 1949, and during which uh, Hollywood took up up to 80% of Chinese uh, market, uh, triggering sort of a mixture of fascination, uh, apprehension, and also resistance. And fascination for the kind of the sheer allure of Hollywood pictures and then apprehension for Hollywood's kind of market dominance and the erosion, the erosion of traditional Chinese uh, wars. And also this kind of resistance for Hollywood's perceived historical injustice to the China image. So as you can see, the entanglement started from day one, right? And then we move to the second phase, you know, the, the founding of the People's Republic of China soon led to the second phase, which was an official ban on all things American, of course, including Hollywood pictures uh, in China during Mao's era, you know, from 1950 all the way until 1976. And so uh, the second phase on the surface, there's no Hollywood film, but the ban was not, there was actually um, circulation under the ground, the so-called interna- uh, internal reference films during the period, um, you know, among certain very exclusive group of of cadres and so on and so forth. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I wanted to kind of comment on for this particular period. I think that there's actually two uh, very interesting twists concerning the ban uh, in 1950. Um, so there was this trepidation from the party leaders initially, who actually had kind of private misgivings about an outright ban, uh, with the concern that such might provoke an outcry. Uh, from the fans of Hollywood pictures, particularly in China's cosmopolitan center like Shanghai, right? Uh, and, and it was a high time, of course, we're talking about 1950, you know, and it was the high time for the party to woo the urban dwellers for the purpose of uh, maintaining stability in the newly founded People's Republic of China. 
Um, so, so they needed Hollywood pictures to serve as a pacifiers. That's kind of very interesting twist. And the other twist is what I mentioned that even though the films were officially banned during the second phase, but there was a, actually a quite a number of uh, internal references films circulating underground unofficially. Um, so Hollywood films actually never really disappeared even during that, that period. And then, of course, the end of the Mao era uh, ushered in the third phase, right, which was kind of a triumphant return of Hollywood and with the overture uh, from China at a time when China's economic reform kind of forced uh, the previously state-subsidized film industry to earn a commercial living, right? And, and you know, far from soft landing, the industry stumbled failed to uh, make marketable pictures. And so Hollywood was called back to resuscitate the Chinese film market. And and so Hollywood did the trick and rebuilt the Chinese market. Uh, and, and, you know, but also kind of while rekindling Chinese audiences fascination uh, with the American films, but also caused new you know, fear and loathing, right? Among the policymakers, industry uh, practitioners. Um, but the second kind of a second China honeymoon actually lasted for three decades, all the way through uh, to the mid uh, 2010. And then there's a kind of most recent phase. Um, and like I said, the, the, the return of Hollywood triggered the, the, the sort of a, the mixed feeling um, and, and promoting very restrictive policies and kind of fierce domestic competition which essentially leads to uh, the fourth phase, that is the kind of decline market share of Hollywood in China. Um, and as the Chinese film industry grows stronger, China pushed back. Uh, and, and you know when you look at the number, American films accounted for more than 48% of China's box office revenue in 2012, right? We're talking 10, a decade ago, and the number was down to 36% in 2016, and it plummeted to only 12% uh, of China's box office revenue by 2021. And of course, uh, you know, we, we know that COVID decimated the North American market and gave China the opportunity to surge as uh, the world's largest film market. And China kind of perched on top of the market for two years until last year. When you know the North America retake the crown, uh, you know is, is the number one uh, box office market in the world. So that's basically the kind of a trajectory that I kind of sketched out in, in a very broad stroke, uh, intercepted with various case little case studies, historical anecdotes. Mm-hmm. And now that you've given us a summary, I want to go to phase one that you described and make a connection to the present day, where you know today. Uh, we hear a lot about uh, the Chinese government and some sectors of the public getting upset about negative depictions of China in the U.S. media. And one thing I found uh, enlightening from your book was that you, know, you uncover that this isn't really a new phenomenon. Uh, can you tell us about the reaction to these China humiliation films during the 1930s and 40s and how the, the then KMT government were, were reacting to films like The Good Earth. Yeah, but there's a, there's a fair amount of historical precedence in uh, you know how uh, China, if, if initially Chinese Americans react to uh, the, the perceived um, insult 
of, of Hollywood pictures in, in kind of depicting uh, Chinese and Asian Chinese Americans. And, and so, so that song, were, those, those sentiments were echoed by um, the Chinese audiences in China when these films were introduced to, to China. So one instance initially has to do with, you know, the receptions of, um, of these films in, in America. So, for instance, in 1919, uh, The Red Lantern and Broke Blossoms, you know, Broke Blossoms is a very famous one uh, by uh, Griffith, right, Deidre Griffith provoked an outcry among Chinese Americans for perceived racist depiction of China and the Chinese. And in response, the US Film Censorship Board told the Chinese protesters that they should just produce, go home, produce their own films uh, as, as a counter discourse. And, and there's a, a, a very interesting gentleman, James Leon, a Los Angeles-based film industry veteran, uh, he, he did. You know, he established his own production company in 1920 to make films that would showcase, uh, you know, as he put it, the real China on the screen and thereby correcting the general impression that Chinese life, as it may be seen through the camera's eye, is chiefly concerned with Tong wars, opium smoking, and strange methods of, of gambling. Right? So that, that's one incident that happened actually in the American soil. Um, and then, uh, you know, 10 years later in 1929, when a film, The Thief of Baghdad, was screened in China, it caused outcry. And so much so that Chen uh, uh, uh the Secretary of Education and Chair of the Film Censorship Committee, that, that's under the KMT, right, uh, during the public era, had issued a series of uh, public uh, statements to echo kind of uh, public anger over uh, the China humiliation films, um, of course, you, know, you talk about the, the thief of Baghdad, and and he what he did is he invoked this kind of international precedent. He says, "I recall that broke a uh, broken blossoms was banned by the British in foreign concessions because it depicts the superiority of Chinese women over British women, right? and according to international law, a nation a nation of any country cannot humiliate." A national of any other country. So he uses this as a, you know, as, as an instance to say, no, no, these films should not be shown in China. And then I mentioned, the, you know, that the case of the Good Earth, the kind of a back and forth, the production of the Good Earth, uh, you know, adaptation by, you know, this famous author, you know, uh, in nineteen, made in nineteen thirty-seven. There's kind of fair amount of back and forth about how the Chinese should be portrayed in this film, and and you know how how kind of Hollywood accommodated, right. Um, in, in their d- depiction, modified plot, and so on and so forth. So these instances, and, and they're, they're not new. You know, uh, like I said, uh, you know, history kind of really goes a cyclical. It, it kind of repeats itself. So uh, a lot of times we're, we're back to square one here. The same kind of negotiation. And after the KMT's defeat, which, you know, what we were just talking about was all Republican era, uh, you have the PRC founded in 1949. And as you talk about in your summary, uh, China pivots towards more of a Soviet filmmaking model. Can you tell us about what that transition was like and also what makes a, the Soviet model different from the Hollywood model? Well, uh, what is, you know, obviously the Soviet model, it's, it's, it's a based plan economy, right? So, the, uh, so it's, it's a, you know, uh, the, the government uh, st- dictates uh, production quota, 
the government allocates production funding, so there's no direct connection with the market. Uh, it was a, the transition was very painful because uh, Chinese film uh, during during the Republic era, Chinese film was a uh, commercial from day one. It was a commercial industry. It was not a state-run industry. Uh, Chinese film pretty much emulated U.S. studio system. You know, but in a much smaller scale, right? It's commercial run, uh, for profit, entertainment oriented, and so on and so forth. So the transition to a different mode of production was was very painful. So it entails a lot of consolidation, uh, a lot of political will or, or coercion, if you will. Um, so that that wasn't an easy one. Uh, and so and so, but but on the other hand, so that was the period that the 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 film industry actually did not need to connect with the market. Because the, there was a guaranteed production funding, guaranteed uh, 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 exhibition, and the Chinese film industry and all the market was sheltered from the international competition because that was the period that that no major international films can be imported to China other than a few films from East Europe. Mm-hmm. And. As you mentioned inside of the summary you gave earlier, Hollywood didn't go away entirely during the Mao era, even during the Cultural Revolution. You have Jiang Qing, Mao's fourth wife, and later people will know her as part of the Gang of Four. Uh, She really loved Hollywood films. Uh, Let's talk more about the internal reference films that she and other party officials enjoyed. What are they? How did they get dubbed? And what role did they play? Yeah, so that's just a very, very interesting period. So, um, you know, these films were non-existent officially, but unofficially these films were screened, circulated uh, intensively, actually, amongst a a, a selected group of people. Uh, These these includes the the, the party, the top enchelon, you know, of, of the party committee and also um, some of the top filmmakers, right? And um, so these films were, some of these films were kind of really um, uh, uh, very well dubbed. It was dubbed into, um, in Chinese language, um, by this very renowned uh, Shanghai film dubbing studio, right? Um, and so these films were, were made for uh, Madame Mao's personal pleasure because she is uh, once upon Madame Mao once upon a time was a uh, was a um, you know actress film actress in Shanghai who appeared in a few uh, you know minor films um, and 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 so so she's essentially also a closet as I my book reviews and she's also a closet classical. Fans of classical Hollywood films, she, she kind of was very fond of particular uh, kind type of uh, classical films, uh, Hollywood films, and so 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 the purpose of, of this is one is for her personal uh, pleasure, and the other one is also because she was leading the charge in reforming the Chinese um, uh, film market, or the film industry, in including the, the Chinese film screening, and she wants to uh, make uh, kind of revolutionary, romantic revolutionary films, right? And which ultimately led to um, the, the so-called model operas, right? So that for the period of time, these were the films that, those were the only films that were allowed to show, right? And, and during, uh, in, during Cultural Revolution. So, and, Jiang Qing actually uh, led a group of filmmakers to uh, kind of watch and study Hollywood films 
and and were really absorbing some of the techniques, technologies from Hollywood films. Uh, in her uh, conceptualization of, of of these opera films, so you actually, if you really look carefully, you see the imprints of these Hollywood films on these so-called revolutionary films uh, made during that period. So that's, that's a very interesting uh, twist. Others. So in the late 1970s, the Cultural Revolution ends. You have Deng Xiaoping come to power, and we get reform and opening up. How does Hollywood start re-engaging with China at this juncture? Who are the key players, the key challenges, and do you see some common patterns between this period and you know, the Republican era? Yeah, you know, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the end of uh, Cultural Revolution, the end of Mao's era, ushered uh, um, in, you know, Deng Xiaoping, uh, and well, it actually started all, uh, near the end of Mao's era because it, it all started with actually uh, uh, near the tail end of Mao's era, you know, because we're talking about, the, you know, the one week that, that changed history, which refers to Nixon's, right, a China visit, right? So that was a real historical moment. And so he came, so, so all of a sudden, the other side of the world opened up, you know, somewhat surreptitiously initially, right? And the end of the Mao's era, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping picked up the... Uh, Batang in terms of this ongoing relationship with the U.S. So that eventually, in the in the late nineteen seventies, eventually led to you know, and Deng Xiaoping visited uh, 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 America too, right? And then so so that the doors started to open, that allows in American popular culture, American literature, American novel, and American TV, and so on and so forth. Uh, but initially. Uh, uh, Hollywood imports to China were real kind of small-scale B-movies. And so the real uh, meaty blockbuster films uh, uh, were not allowed in until mid-1990s. So these are the the uh, so-called revenue-sharing films. So starting in 1994, uh, China signed a contract uh, with the Hollywood studio, and this is we're not allowing for 10 big blockbuster films for revenue sharing. And so that's what the studio really wants, right? Uh, and so so that started this, this trend. Of course, the rest is history. <laughs> and so, so it's the same pattern, as I mentioned before, that it triggered the same kind of uh, uh, fear and loathing, right? And, 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 and fascination. Um, so there's a push and pull relationship um, and and so the person uh, who from the U.S. studio side that who played a, a key role is really Jack uh, Valentine, Jack Valentine, who is the the head of uh, MPPA, right? And and who really was instrumental in pushing um, China open its market. So the the, the two uh, uh, Jack had a two kind of utmost two goals in mind. One is to uh, ask China to open as a market, which was really difficult. It continues to be so. Uh, open as a market. And the other one is to crack down on piracy, right? Because piracy was a big issue. And and if, for those of you who lived in, in China in the 1990s or visited China in the 1990s, you'll, you'll know 1980s, 1990s, you'll know that all these American films were, even though they're not exported to China, but, but the DVD copies, no. Initially, it was actually, uh, you know, these VCD, video CD copies were, were rampantly available in China. And they're like a, a one US dollar. <laughs> so, so there's a large, huge amount of, of a revenue loss from the studio side. So, so Valentin really emphasized, okay, we need to open the market and crack down 
the piracy. And he sees these two are kind of into, you know, really linked because only if you open the market, therefore, uh, these films can come in legitimately instead of uh, uh, in, in piracy. And so, so this is actually, you know, leads to current state of Sino-US, uh, Sino-Hollywood relationship. And now we're back to square one because the market, uh, you know, China really has restricted Hollywood's access, official access to the market. But uh, audiences of fascination with Hollywood films continued, you know, in so 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 in, in, in some ways. And how do they access uh, uh, Hollywood films? Well, there's a plenty of, you know, the streaming platform opens a, a new, you know, it's, it's like a, open a can of worm is so far as Paris is concerned. So you have a lot of these uh, uh, a, a new uh, pirated co- copies readily available uh, uh, on, on, on these uh, uh, various private or, or community platforms for them to share. So now Hollywood is facing the same, trying to fight the same battle, opening market and trying to, to stop the bleeding of, of revenues. Well, on the note of bleeding of revenues, or at least market share, you mentioned earlier that uh, the share of Hollywood films in terms of China box office is now lower than at the peak uh, just you know a, a decade or two ago, and domestic industry in China for filmmaking has, I would say, naturally matured over the years, and and. By the 2010s, uh, you have a good number of popular Chinese blockbusters that seem to compete against Hollywood movies in in a rather effective manner. And you spend some time highlighting movies from two directors, uh, Feng Xiaogang and Shi Zheng. Uh, why did you choose to highlight those particular directors? And uh, what should listeners know about their work? Yeah, I think that this is the thing that I, I wanted to uh, kind of I can intentionally do that. I think that uh, the, the world should know that, um, first of all, I think to do better check the pulse of Chinese cinema or, 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 or China for that matter. I think it really behooves us to pay more attention um, in, you know, to what the Chinese audience is actually watching, right? Uh, and 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 so to the popular Chinese mainstream films instead of, uh, but most of the time we we pay attention to, um, you know Chinese blockbuster propaganda films if we're talking about Chinese films at all propaganda films, or, or independent Chinese small scale independent films that are kind of mostly circulating among the international film festival circuits right so these are the two things that we pay attention to, but apart from these films actually, uh, the Chinese filmmakers have been making mainstream commercial films uh, for Chinese audiences that are enormously popular in China. So, so my intention is to look at these films. You know, see what exactly, uh, uh, what, what what do these films tell us about China and Chinese cinema? Uh, instead of, you know, kind of lightly dismiss them in the kind of really purity contest for artistic quality and political or provocation. Uh, and so I, I talked in my chapter seven that over the years, the Chinese film industry has cultivated kind of very unique brand of holiday movies uh, that have resonated with the Chinese audiences. So these are the kind of films I talked about there. And in the past few years, uh, we have COVID and rising geopolitical tensions and 
And that's resulted in this relative decoupling, as you hinted at earlier, of Chinese cinema and Hollywood. And it's not just in terms of business relationships, but also the types of movies that audiences are watching. Like you talk about the the Hollywood the Spring Festival films, and like when you look at the box offices for you know this year or last year, uh, and and just recent years, you see a lot more of these nationalistic blockbusters making a lot of money, like Wolf Warrior Two, you know, Operation Red Sea, but more recently, you know, Battle of Lake Changjin. Uh, Wandering Earth 2 and, and the first one coming out, I think, 2019. So, you know, like these films are genuinely popular. Uh, what what do you think explains the appeal of these movies and, and what might be good for uh, listeners to learn more about their context? Yeah, I, 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 so uh, these films are kind of different from what I talk about, kind of a, a popular uh, commercial films. These are the so-called. Actually, there's a there's a term that the that the Chinese uh, film and uh, uh, ministry uses, and I I kind of uh, used it in my uh, book as well. It's called heavy industry movies. Right. So the, the term came up upon in 2015. That was proposed by the then head of the uh, film bureau, and who was actually a very renowned uh, uh, um, screenwriter in China uh, from Shandong Province. So he comes up with this this notion of heavy industry, uh, meaning so so these are the films that were channeling the party's directive, but but packaged in Hollywood style, big budget, high tech, blockbuster films, blockbuster in terms of you know box office. So you have high tech, you 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 know you have these these uh, uh, mainstream not mainstream uh, leitmotif or main melody propaganda films that's packaged in a very fancy fashion, big budget. Um, um, high tech and in a in a way kind of Hollywood style storytelling, right? And so 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 these are sort of a guaranteed commercial success. So these were the film that really uh, came out. Uh, we had those films kind of tricking out on an annual basis every year during some kind of you know national day celebration. They they, they come out already, but during COVID and these films really came out. In Ink and they took over um, a Chinese market. And so, so these were the film that, that really it was a very successful experimentation for the uh, for the Chinese film industry, for the Chinese government, uh, for this particular period of time when uh, uh, you know th- there's a void, the market has a void for for these films to fill in, and and also this was the period there was no non. Hollywood blockbuster, the existence of Hollywood blockbuster films. Uh, and so these films really can, they, they sell well, right? And the Chinese audiences, you know, feel they're very patriotic and they like to see these films. But uh, whether this, um, the trend will last or not, and that, that's questionable. And if the Chinese film market opens up wider, allowing more Hollywood films to come in, uh, or allowing uh, films of a diverse uh, you know, cultural inclinations, uh, you know, a, a more small scale of films and personal films to come out, whether these films can continue occupy uh, such a uh, market share in China, that is, uh, you know, anybody's guess. I would assume that audiences uh, would get fatigued and they probably would yearn for something that's different. Yeah, well, these films that we were just talking about, like the Battle of Lake Changjin and Wolf Warrior, uh, don't necessarily do well internationally even compared to american films like top gun which you would argue is like a analogous situation Uh, and i think that speaks to how china's international soft power uh, especially in the 
the cinema front seems to pale in comparison to Hollywood and even South Korea. Are there reasons for this besides the obvious authoritarian controls or, uh, you know, what is a broader context and uh, explanation for this, despite the amount of money and effort they're pouring in? So, yeah, um, the... so, if, so you're right. If you look at the statistics, that you know, absolutely. So that there's no comparison. Speaking of soft power, you know, so the, the 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 heavy industry films that I mentioned earlier, and they were enormously popular domestically, uh, but no, they have very, very, very little international uh, appeal. So, and you know, the number really don't lie. I can tell you. So, so, so for instance, the number one Chinese films have earned up to five percent of their revenues. From overseas sales, right, and so the number from uh, um, from Americans is sixty five percent. So the numbers, really, you know, and don't lie. I think that you know, so the, the, there's an underlying aversion in terms of international audiences. There's an underlying aversion to China's kind of authoritarian mode of control, uh, um, which leads to the kind of skepticism on any Chinese film coming through the official channel, right. Uh, and so the, the kind of a regular intrusion of patriotic mandates and the, the kind of very ethnocentric insistence on the superiority of Chinese civilization only serve to affirm or confirm audiences' suspicion. And and the other you know kind of barrier is that the so-called uh, linguistic barrier or cultural discount. Uh, which refers to that, you know, popular domestic films or stories tend to address local concerns or issues of local kind of cultural proximity, right, that are meant for local consumptions and not necessarily transferable uh, globally, right? Um, and, and Chinese films successful overseas are kind of either artistically experimental or politically provocative. And so, so that also there's expectation uh, from for an international audience is the kind of film they would appreciate, right? So they want to expect these kind of films. Um, and But these films, uh, the small independent films are meant for the festival circuit and independent film markets. They don't really sell well in a commercial market. So there's a lack of real uh, international appeal. And then there's a, a you know curious crackdown on this notion of universal value. Uh, and as, as a concept, so that 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 is the result of a crackdown in uh, in 2013, at the time of the Arab Spring, uh, Spring and and the U.S. call for sort of a, a, a internet promotion of universal values. So the Chinese government responded by saying that oh, let's crack down on certain terms, including uh, the term of universal value. So you cannot make a film that championing uh, universal value. And when you stripped off this kind of universal values, the only ideals remaining for the Chinese film industry to kind of work with or preach are Chinese traditions and cultural values. And, and some of them are really kind of difficult to, to sell uh, overseas. Then in contrast to uh, what we were just talking about then with Chinese soft power, what are some elements that you think makes Hollywood popular in China and beyond? Yeah, that's kind of another interesting question. People have been just kind of 
trying to you know research understand you know the, the what is the formula of Hollywood right and that makes it so successful um, so so you know actually I, I touched upon this this question 20 years ago when I wrote my first book on Chinese uh, cinema um, so as I see it, so there, there's this kind of uh, cumulative reputation of American films as the you know the state of art in production and marketing um, and and Hollywood is, is by now a really a well-oiled machine that kind of practically runs on autopilot in terms of marketing uh, um, uh, production technology. And then there's there's also this notion of uh, you know Hollywood has is the, the kind of a tour de force in storytelling, perfected by uh, the century-long creative craftsmanship, buttressed by the influx of national financial and human resources. Uh, and human resources from America over the, you know, uh, overseas, right? You have a German migrants and, and a French, and, you know, even some people from Hong Kong, they're now working in, in, in Hollywood. So as you, you can see, that so the difference there. And then there's a, there's, a, there's a crucial thing that there is a universal appeal of American popular culture and lifestyle, or, you know, or the so-called American dream. And it does not hurt that the American dream, however flawed, has a kind of stronghold in the popular imagination, and you know, and the American stories Hollywood tells has kind of strong appeal uh, to the rest of the world. Um, so, so there's this kind of universal and cosmopolitan, right, as opposed to the earlier talked about the crackdown on universal value. So, you know, of course, Hollywood claim to transcend national boundaries, kind of with arguably characters and themes that are more accessible to the global audiences when, you know, Chinese films are encouraged out to be kind of deeply embedded with this kind of national cultural traditions or party directives. So, um, so, so, so this kind of explains, uh, if you put the two together, um, so where, where the deficit lies. And then, and then there's, of course, the name and brand recognition of Hollywood stars. You know, the, at a practical matter, there isn't a real one or two big name uh, popular stars in China that can conquer the market. There's no Tom Cruise to say, right? Tom Cruise can make a Top Gun and revitalize the entire franchise, right? And what do you think the future then holds for this China Hollywood relationship? So the so the the, the cycle of boom and bust is really uh, the norm in in business, in particularly in film business. I think the history tends to go cyclical, right? So so we're at this particular. Uh, historical conjuncture, partly because of intensified Sino-US relation, right? So a lot of these, uh, uh, you know, the, the access and collaboration are off the table. Uh, and so that kind of limited Hollywood's uh, or Chinese audience exposure to Hollywood films, right? So, so at this point, but the, 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 the problem is the Chinese market, if it continues to expand to be big, it needs films. Can China's domestic films alone sustain the market, right? And and so it did during COVID. Uh, and and but last year, the lesson from last year tells us that probably not. We do actually the, the market probably do need some more, you know, some some other you know diverse films coming in, including Hollywood blockbuster films. So uh, one is the other. The other one is uh, the, on the other side of the equation is uh, can Hollywood survive without Talia? The, the China uh, box office, right? So, so probably to survive with the Chinese, without the Chinese market, it would have to modify its budget, would have to modify its expectation, 
right? So, uh, so there's also the tricky issue of government regulations. Uh, we, you know, we also accustomed to talk about uh, restrictions from the China side. Now the U.S. government has stepped in to do their part, following up with these restrictive policies, right? So, um, so, the, so this is kind of the, the, the it's, it's a harsh uh, uh, a time, but on the other hand, uh, you know. Um, the market continues to require, um, um, you know, films um, from a, a, a diverse stream, including Hollywood. Um, so I, I think, uh, you know, it's it's too early to call and to 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 claim this is the end of Sino Hollywood. I, I think you know we're 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 it's 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 we're we're at the recess in the words, right? And we might have a recovery down the road. Uh, but of course, all this is contingent upon this larger power dynamic between the U.S. and America and China, right? Well, we'll see what the future has to hold, and maybe you'll write another update, <laughs> part number three, to, to let us know. Uh, but why don't we close on a, a lighter question here? What are some of your favorite, you know, personally favorite Chinese movies that you might recommend to our listeners? Yeah, um, so... I, uh, you know, I'm always a little bit more um, kind of uh, 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 nostalgic about uh, all the different eras. So thinking about the, you know, in the, the early 1990s, um, and you know, the, the two films in, that I really liked a lot is uh, one is I don't know if you know this film, "To Live" by Zhang Yimou, made in 1994, and "Blue Kite" uh, by Tian Zhongzhong, uh, made in 1993, and so these kind of epic scale uh, film that chart the lives of, of, of families or individuals surviving the tumultuous period of, of modern Chinese history. Uh, in, in, in terms of to live, it, it kind of it's a sweeping coverage from Chinese civil war, right? Uh, in the late 1940s through the, you know, all the, all the way until the Mao's era. And, and, and Blue Kai focuses on you know, several moments during Mao's era you know how the family survived the Great Leap Forward and cultural evolution and so on and so forth, and and you know these are the films that I really kind of uh, felt very connect to uh, personally and during that time, uh, and as we entered two thousand, um, I don't know if you know this very interesting kind of small scale film, but one big uh, the one Silver Bear Award at the Berlin Film Festival, Li Yang's Blind Shaft, two thousand three. I recommend people to watch this film. It's about two struggling Chinese coal miners who kind of cooked up this perfect scam, befriending their gullible fellow miners and, and then murder them and run away with their life insurance. Uh, interesting concept, right? Uh, and and so, so the film is incredibly humanistic. It's a really humanistic film, uh, which is what like, much like, a, you know, it's, it's a different type of film uh, but has this kind of humanistic resonance. It, you know, it, the, it's a, adopted really a non-judgmental approach, right? It's not about repudiation for these two criminals. It shows what poverty does to people and how little uh, human lives are valued when the system is not set up to protect us. So, so that's a, a little a real uh, jewel, film jewel. If, if, if you haven't seen it, you really should watch it. And in terms of the film in the last 10 years, 
and I, I wrote about this film actually. It's it's called I I like this quite like this film. Uh, I'm not Madame Bovary that I wrote about in my in my book. You know, it's kind of a very interesting satirical comedy about a small town woman uh, uh, wronged by her unfaithful husband. You know, who is now seeking uh, avenge or justice, right? And and also the bureaucratic hurdles along the way uh, she must overcome, right? And so the so the irony of of that film is that the law is actually not on her side, right? Because she schemed with her husband to have a sham divorce in order to buy an, an apartment. You know, don't get me started with this complicated real estate law in China. But suffice it to say that she needs to have a divorce in order to get another apartment. Uh, and of course, and then her husband, uh, <laughs> uh, they, they had a divorce, they got a, an apartment, the husband divorced, you know, the husband had a real divorce, well, no, so they had a divorce, it's official, it's legal, right, it's divorce, and the husband hooked up with another woman and moved into that apartment, right, so, so that's, so, so the law really isn't on her side. Uh, so the, the film really deals with this very complex issues concerning the relationship between law and justice, you know, as well as humanity. Uh, and it reminds me of another film uh, in 19, maybe 1992 by Zhang Yimou, The Story of Choji, uh, right? And so, so actually, uh, I'm not, Madame Bovary is a perfect example of what I said, films that deals with local issues that are so complex, it's very difficult to translate internationally. You know, it would just be difficult, but it's an incredibly witty film. It also has these kind of uh, artistic experimentation in terms of composition, the kind of uh, the shape of the length, and in a sense of course, you know, I, I quite quite like these films. Um, what are the others? I think that's all I can think of at the moment. <laughs> well, that's already quite a few films and, and a pretty good selection that gives you a you know, variety of eras, different uh, you know, actors, directors, and such. I mean, <laughs> I am not Madame Bovary stars, uh, a, a very interesting actor if folks want to look into that fun being being tax evasion. Uh, we'll just leave it there and let people Google that. Um, but thank you very much, Ying. Uh, this was a very enlightening conversation. Um, I appreciated being able to dive deep alongside you in these past hundred years of the Hollywood and China relationship. So listeners, if you want to learn more about what we discussed in this episode, look for Ying Zhu's book, Hollywood in China. Ying, thank you so much for coming on the New Books Network. Thank you. It was fun.